Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. There is a, a little bit of a racial litmus test in my introduction, and it's the title of my first book. When people say Barbershops, Bibles, and BET, I know we're together as family. And when it's Barbershops, Bibles, and BET, I know that I have a little more work to do. And it, it's really, it, it does, it happens pretty often, so I love that. Thank you very much. Uh, um, so it's, it's great to be here. It is, it is very late where I live. It is after 10 o'clock, uh, and so I will uh, uh, try to remain normal. Um, but um, I do, um, I think it's why I'm only really on the earlier shows and not on Ed very often, because I get a little freer later in the evening, so... Um, I am, I'm really thrilled, particularly, to have this opportunity to, at this point, be walking around the country and talking about my new book project, Sister Citizen. And it's exciting for me because it is this opportunity that I just am not sure I ever expected would happen. There's a part of me that still feels like the graduate student dying for anybody to read anything that I've written. Uh, and so it is still always surprising to me when my work goes before me and people have read things that I've written, um, but then to have an opportunity and come and be in conversation about something as precious to me and as uh, over-identified as I am with this particular book uh, is, is fantastic. And especially, I think, in this political moment when we are, as we gear up, I think, for the 2012 election cycle, uh, the difference at this moment than what we felt four years ago. Um, with all of the, the angst and the war and the economic crisis that we were experiencing in 2008, there was nonetheless a sense of, dare I say it, hopefulness in the American electorate, a kind of willingness to imagine that we could still find answers to our collective problems. And I sense in so many ways that really disconnected from even who the candidates are or the parties, there is a sense of angst about whether or not we still believe that we have the capacity to find answers together across our differences. And so I'm also excited to be here because I'm hoping that we can have a conversation not only about the book project, but hopefully that will open up some discourse about our current political moment. So... Sister Citizen uh, is a book that took me way too long to write. Uh, it's not my fault, it's my daughter's fault. Um, she's nine and a half, and that's about how long it took the book uh, to be written. Uh, it, the first two years uh, of her life, I don't even think I saw anything above like this height. You know, you're just looking down all the time. Um, but, but part of the process of rearing a little black girl child was to make Sister Citizen that much more important for me to write. I am interested in this book in trying to think about black women's interior lives as a site of citizenship. And so that makes it odd. You know, if you, if you ask people in intro American government, as I often do, you know, what is politics or what is political science? You know, they say things like voting, elections, we have three branches of government, you know, that sort of thing. And this book is not about any of that. It's really not about the way that black women behave when they go to 
the voting booth. It's not really about the choices that African-American women make when they decide to run for office or, or choose not to. Uh, it's not, for the most part, even about what our current office holders or historical office holders have done in the realm of the world that we think of and identify clearly as the political world. Instead, it's a claim about what it feels like to try to do the work of citizenship when you are in a body that is racialized and gendered in a way that produces shame, fear, and distress. Carol Pateman talks about the dilemma that the work that women do, domestic labor, is a kind of welfare to parents and spouses and children and communities, but it's not valued as citizenship work. If we think about the height of citizenship, how you know that someone is a great citizen, it is typically male. Particularly, we know that someone is a great citizen when they have served their country in the military voluntarily during a time of war. I, I, I know this because if I go to the Washington Mall and I walk around on the Washington Mall, most of the monuments to our great citizens are either to presidents who have served in the highest level of elected office or to the extent that they are to ordinary persons, they are to men who have served primarily in foreign war. That's, that's the ultimate citizenship duty. And the other one, up until 15 minutes ago, was paying taxes. Um, now, not so much. But <laughs> there was this sort of notion of the social contract, right? That the, the government provides certain kinds of goodies and protections and we fight in the military willingly, and pay taxes. Now we just stand on public streets and say we don't want taxes. Which is <laughs> funny, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> while using public police officers to protect us while we stand on public streets. Okay. The problem with women's labor in general is that women's labor, in, to the extent that it operated in the domestic and private sphere, was not seen really as a citizenship contribution. Never mind that those contributions actually produced those tax-paying men and actually produced those soldiers, but there was no quantifiable, or to the extent that it was quantified, it was consistently degraded, that work as citizenship work. When you go to the Washington Mall, you don't see monuments built to our mothers writ large or to our maids. So let me just pause there on the question of maids because in fact there nearly was a statue on the Washington Mall to the domestic servants of the old confederacy, specifically to Mammy. So uh, I have this weird job at MSNBC. I don't really work there. Like, I don't really go over there very often. I live in New Orleans, for goodness sake. But they do occasionally call me and just make me do things. And one of the things they called me and made me do was to go see the help. And they said, on opening day, they said, Melissa, you've got to go see the help. And I was like, no. I'm, I read that book. I am not going to go see that. And they're like, no, no, no. We'd like you to go, and we'd like you to live tweet it. Um, so like you go live tweet it and then you know come on the show and talk about it later and I was like okay you know I haven't been drinking so I'm sure it'll be fine I'll go uh, and and the movie it took me over over the edge it's not fair to send a black feminist in the middle of the day in Louisiana to see the help 
It was not, it was, it was horrifying. Um, and part of what made it horrifying for me was I kept thinking about this Mammy monument, this statue, because in so many ways this film felt as though someone were finally building, not in granite, but this time on celluloid, although not that it hasn't already been built several times before, but, but giving us a new generation so that my daughters too can enjoy the pleasure of filmed Mammy. That statue was one of the first acts of citizenship by white women. Not all white women, but the daughters of the American Confederacy. Not long after the passage of the 19th Amendment, raised money in order to build a statue to Mammy on the Washington Mall. And the U.S. Senate, the same Senate that repeatedly refused to pass the dire anti-lynching bill, repeatedly refused to pass a bill that would have made it a federal offense to murder people of color. That same Senate went ahead and passed forward the grant for the land for the monument. And so then it went to the House of Representatives. And it was actually stopped in the House of Representatives in large part because of the active participation of women's club movements and of the black press who said, you cannot build a monument to someone who does not exist. Mammy is not real. Mammy is an imaginary figure. Mammy is not what you imagine Mammy is. The women who were forced as enslaved persons to work in the homes as domestic workers were not the loyal servants who cared more about the families for whom they worked than their own families. That's not the story. You cannot build this monument. It's only because of the active pushback that the House of Representatives did not allow the land grant to go through and that we do not now have within the eyesight of the Martin Luther King monument a Mammy monument because that's, that's where it would be. I bring that up because I want to suggest that the question of what counts as a citizenship duty and a citizenship responsibility is raced and gendered. That for white men, the ultimate act of citizenship is participation in foreign war. Part of how you know this is because if you run for president, you will be asked whether or not right, you dodged the draft, whether or not you participated in the war, all of that. Think, for example, about the difference between Hillary and Bill Clinton running for office. They are of the same age. And yet the question of Bill Clinton's participation in the military was a central question, and it never came up in the context of Hillary Clinton. Because it simply isn't a responsibility, it's not a duty, it is not an assumption that as a woman, as an American woman, that it would have been her responsibility to have been a soldier. But for Bill, as a man, it was a central question. We know this in part because of the monuments we build. And so if the monument, the one monument we've thought of building of African-American women is a monument to Mammy, it gives us some clue about what the citizenship ideal is for African-American women. The notion of what would constitute something that the larger community would value, would place and say, this may make you a great American. It would make you a great American if you 
behaved as Mammy did, which means that you brought your magical capacity to fix all problems, despite the fact that you have very few resources of your own. In fact, in the case of Mammy, not even your own freedom, not even the ability to control the lives of your own children and offspring, not even the ability to earn wages for your labor. You have nothing, and yet you have the ability to produce wonderful food, a clean home, Lots of advice. And to do so with a kind of fidelity to the white domestic sphere that is worthy of the kind of value that is represented in a federal statue. When I first started taking courses in cognitive psychology, my favorite research was about the crooked room. It is research about our cognitive perceptual abilities, right? It's not research about race and gender. It's about how our brains work. So here's what we would do. No, not us. 1950s researchers on cognitive psychology. They would take an individual, put them in a room that was dark, and then flip the lights on. And when the lights came on, all the angles of the room were crooked, right? So the door was set on an angle. The room was not at 90 degrees. There were pictures hanging on the wall. They were also at an angle. Everything in your field of perception was off kilter. And you were in a chair, like one of those chairs you might have at like Universal Studios with a, with a ride that was mobile. And your responsibility was to find the upright in this room. These were field dependency studies. The question was, how dependent are we perceptually on the field that we can see for figuring out what is up and down? Some people, a very small proportion of people, are field independent. doesn't matter how many crooked images there are. They can find their true upright. But most people, it turns out, are field dependent. And they can get themselves tilted in that chair as much as 45 degrees, but perceive themselves as straight up and down because they are in line with the crooked images all around them. Again, this is cognitive research. It's about how our brains work. But when I read that work, I said, oh, that's just like being a black woman in America. The work of citizenship is in part the work of being in a constantly, bafflingly crooked room where all the images of black womanhood that are coming back at you are crooked, are tilted, are sort of recognizable, but not quite where the value of who you are that could be seen as most valuable would be the mammy. I got to tell you, it's a little cricket. It's a loaf. The work, and, but, 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 but let, me, let me just, let me come back to the help for a second. So on the one hand, it's completely crooked and off and bizarre. And when it's mammy, we kind of get it, even though we keep buying the Aunt Jemima box. But we sort of get that like Gone with the Wind is not okay. And we obviously got that the mommy, ma mammy monument was not okay because we pushed back against it. But somehow, we, we like the help. Like, in large numbers, really like the help. Now, I could spend the rest of the evening just explaining why that is Tyler Perry's fault. Because <laughs> not only am I not related to Rick Perry, I'm also not related to Tyler Perry. But I won't. I will not explain why it's Tyler Perry's fault, except to say that part of what Perry does is create for us a set of crooked images that make it difficult for us to figure out what the true upright is. So when we see transcendently fabulous Viola Davis, 
standing there in her actual black womanhood, performing this role with such, oh, ability, given how poor the role is, we think, well, this is worth seeing, right? It feels not so crooked because compared to the offerings that we typically get, this seems like a somewhat more upright image. I mean, I went to see the first Sex in the City movie. This is, this is in the book. I went to see the first Sex in the City movie, you know, because I just was looking for like a chick flick, you know, I wasn't looking for any sort of emotion. I was just going to go watch Sex in the City. It was fives in New York that weekend my best girlfriend was with me. So we go and we sit down and watch a movie, and there's Jennifer Hudson doing Mammy. And we were like, oh! but, but why didn't anyone tell us? And why would that be necessary? And, and why in a movie about, you know, 21st century women living in New York who've never bothered to meet any black women during the entire time that they've lived in New York on the television show, must they now suddenly have a Mammy? And why does it have to be Jennifer Hudson, who we love? And why is this happening? And why am I having to have a black feminist movie, you know, moment while I'm going to try to see like a fun movie? It was just a crooked room, right? So there you are just going to try. So this is my point about the crooked room. I'm just trying to give you some moments here, how you can just be sort of wandering through your life, not really having a race or gender experience. And then here comes an image. Here comes the tilt. And you've got to figure out, and this is the thing you have to remember, you've got to figure out how to engage that crooked image. Now, now, one possibility is to overcompensate back the other direction. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So if, the, if it's tilted this way and you know it's off, you actually end up this way a little bit, just because you know it's off, but you can't quite figure out by how much. The other possibility is if you feel dependent, to accommodate that image and experience it as your authentic self. So there are three particular tilting images. The Mammy, which I've talked about a bit here, but the other two are also highly recognizable. Jezebel, or the kind of uh, hot, lascivious, oversexed black woman. You certainly understand that she is rooted in the experience of American slavery. She's rooted in having to explain why it would be okay to use women's bodies to breed for economic purposes while simultaneously believing in the Victorian cult of true womanhood that says that women are on pedestals and above, right? So you've got to be able to explain how you can have a breeder who you also work in the fields, whose body is available to any male who the master deems appropriate, including himself, and simultaneously believe that women have to be protected and careful in this domestic sphere. And, and so in order to make that work, you have to create an image of black women as something other than this thing that is woman. And so Jezebel is a very useful tool in the context of American slavery. But of course, you know she didn't stay there. You can turn on BET, oh, B-E-T, right? Uh, and you can see, right, you can see Jezebel at work, and you can see the propagation and perpetration of black women as highly sexualized. You can turn on C-SPAN and listen to Congress talk about welfare policy and the need to control black women's progeny, to, to, to make sure that black women don't have too many babies. You've got to cut them off after three kids because otherwise they'll just keep having all these babies and they'll be welfare queens. That's, of course, rooted in the same belief that black women simply don't control their fertility because they are, after all, oversexed. So it's an old old myth, 
but one that has very new resonance. So Aunt Jemima is old, Mammy is old, but then she shows up in all of these contemporary contexts. And similarly, there is the angry black woman. She's the latest figure. She is the sort of 1910, 1920s, 1930s version of black womanhood that still has this active role. We see her all the time. Again, you can run into her on a Super Bowl commercial for no apparent reason. Like you're just watching the Super Bowl, having a perfectly nice time. Family over, eating some chicken wings, having a nice time. And then, there's Sapphire, yelling at her husband and throwing cell phones at his head and beating up white women on the commercial for no reason. And you're just like, what? why is this happening, right? The crooked room consists, I mean, seriously, like there, there are times when you understand that someone is trying to cope with race and gender and then they're doing it poorly. And there's other times when they're, they're selling you a cell phone. And so you're not quite clear why angry black woman has to show up in that moment. So here's an example of accommodating one of those crooked images, the angry black woman image, for example. She can be an awfully powerful political actor. It is not necessarily a good idea to get rid of angry black woman if you plan to do some community organizing, if you plan to run for office, if you plan to engage in the public, you want to at least keep angry black woman in your back pocket, right? There are times when you're going to want to bring her and do her and make her do work for you because you recognize that that expectation exists of who black women are. And so when you can go ahead and embody it, it can have this very powerful effect. But let me suggest that when we accommodate that image, there is still a way, right, there's still a way in which that is not a fully authentic expression of self. That even when you are angry and have every right to be angry, that because that anger is being read through the crooked lens, through the tilted image, the anger doesn't come off as an authentic expression of something about inequality. It just comes off as being angry about something again. But the danger, of course, is that in the pushback the other way, in the attempt to straighten the image by being the opposite thing, African-American communities have created a fourth, and that is the strong black woman. I'm going to talk more about the strong black woman in one second, but let me suggest that the strong black woman is an actual political strategy. She is a shame management strategy. So let me make a quick claim about the politics of shame, then I'll talk about strong black woman, and then we can open it up a bit. Racial pride is very powerful politically, and it rests on a concept called fictive kinship. This is Carol Stack's work that says, you know, when I call you my sister or you my brother, we're not actually related to each other. That's going to be confusing, but... It's a sense of fictive kinship. Fictive kinship is why February Black History Month works the way it does in public schools, right? They line the children up and they say things like, Harriet Tubman brought people to freedom. So Jonah Truth gave a great speech. Garrett Morgan invented the streetlight, right? These kind of McDonald's Black History Month facts operate, right, they are, right? where I got all those facts from, right? They operate um, as, a, as a fictive kinship tie. The claim here is the reason that you should feel proud about Harriet Tubman's accomplishments is because she's a black woman and you're a black woman and so what she was able to do in difficult circumstances, you too will now be able to do because a black woman did those things. 
Thomas Jefferson, having been president of the United States, is not meant to empower African-American girls in the third grade. It's meant to teach them history, but it is not meant to create for them a sense of prideful individual capacity to overcome obstacles. Despite the fact that Thomas Jefferson was human and they are human, and therefore this human did this thing, and therefore since they are human they might be able to do this human thing, because the human fictive kinship doesn't quite work like that. We cultivate racial pride importantly as a political strategy. And what it allows is for you to feel proud of the accomplishments of unrelated fictive kin. But here's the flip side of pride. The flip side of pride is shame. If you can feel proud of the accomplishments of unrelated fictive kin, then you can also feel ashamed of the failures of unrelated fictive kin. Pause for a moment, we're gonna have a little black people internal conversation. <laughs> black folks in the audience, please recall how you felt when you found out that the DC sniper was black. Yeah. <laughs> okay, All right, pause, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak to the white folks. White folks in the audience, Please recall how you felt when Sarah Palin gave her 2008 speech to the GOP convention. Okay, now everybody's together on what racial shame feels like. No, 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 I'm just kidding. We I actually think that was one of the most brilliant political speeches of all time for all, all kinds of reasons. Okay, if the failures or perceived failures or shortcomings of unrelated fictive kin can create shame and you exist in an environment that generates stigmatizing shaming based on identity characteristics and not behavior. So let me say that one more time. The accomplishments of unrelated fictive kin can generate pride in a way that is politically powerful, can actually lead people outside and into political engagement and opportunity and can lead them to ask for things things from the state to demand their rights as citizens, to march, to vote. It actually has a discernible and even empirically measurable impact on African-American politics. We have not thought enough about the other side, the flip side of that, which is the politics of racial shame. Because if those unrelated fictive kin can make us feel proud, they can also make us feel ashamed. And the deal with stigmatizing shaming, by the way, not all shaming is bad. You know, Goffman tells us shaming is a requirement for social life. You have to, you know, sort of get into the things that are and are not acceptable to do. But reparative shaming is the kind of shaming that says, I will shame you so that you come back into the community. Parents use this sort of shaming. Right? The black church uses this sort of shaming on Sunday morning. If you are sitting in the pews and you are nine years old and you are not paying attention and your mama's in the choir and your mama looks at you with the shame face, you feel shame, but then you can still have dinner with the family later that evening. It is a shame meant to tell you about behavior and then to bring you back into the community. But stigmatizing shaming says that your very body, your very identity, your very self is malignant, that it might spread. Take, for example, if simply by giving birth to a child, you give birth to a slave. 
that your body actually reproduces slavery. Or maybe you are the parent of a black boy in Louisiana and he does poorly on his tests in the third grade, then you have just produced a prison bed in your state because we determine prison beds in Louisiana based on third grade reading scores. Maybe, maybe you are a black woman and you are considering having or not having a child and you walk into Soho and there is a 20-story billboard that says the most dangerous place in the world to be if you are black is in the womb. That is a shaming billboard by the right to life movement, meant to tell you that your very body, your very self, your very reproductive capacity is malignant. The only thing that you can produce out of your black body, out of your black uterus, is blackness, and blackness is malignancy. Blackness is badness. Blackness is failure. See, it's the very identity itself, not even our first black president, God love him, came from a black woman's body. I know, we just got to be with that for a minute. Okay, yes. <laughs> the very idea that the, anything that you can produce would always be shameful. Now take that and lay that on to crooked images of Jezebel, of Mammy, of the angry black woman that are consistently projected back, and you have a stew for cortisol soup. It turns out that shame is not just a bad feeling. Shame actually creates physiological responses in your body. Shame actually increases the cortisol stress hormone. That little test I just did about the DC sniper, I can actually get you to experience political shame, swipe the inside of your mouth, lay it on a slide, and find a cortisol response. And guess what? If you have those cortisol responses regularly, if you are consistently confronted with shaming images, you end up with things like hardened arteries, a middle tire around your middle. I always tell black women it's not the cupcakes, it's the shame. Let go of the shame. Keep the cupcakes. <laughs> In the book, I talk about the Duke Lacrosse case as a shame moment. I also talk about how the language of refugee in the context of the Hurricane Katrina disaster was in part about shaming people who were abandoned by their own government by displacing them outside of the circle of citizenship. So the deal is, of course, though, that African-American women never just accept the negative images. It's not all just bad. We still like being who we are. And part of it is a resistance strategy in which we create this fourth image. And this fourth image is this attempt to push back against the shame, to manage those shame strategies. Historians have talked brilliantly about this in the context of the politics of respectability, the dissemblance of sort of maintaining a perfect exterior in order to push back against any notion that you could be any of these negative stereotypes. And so the strong black woman emerges as this internal community narrative about the ability of black women under all circumstances to be able to manage, to be able to do well, to be able to stand up for family, for community, for church, for spouses, and to do so 
almost naturally or essentially or as an inborn right. And in fact, so strong is this notion of the strong black woman that it becomes a kind of racial imperative. If you are weak, if you are sad, if you need help, then you are not only sort of failing in the terms of the general American individualism, rugged individualism, but you're actually failing the race. You are actually generating shame in your neediness, in your desire for help. When I uh, do focus groups in the book, as I talk to African-American women about what it feels like to be this strong black woman who confronts all trials and tribulations on behalf of those she loves and perseveres with little attention to her own needs, and this was a common response. Sometimes I am very, very much jaded. You're angry because you're still going. It's so repetitious. Your life has become you know, I have to do this. I have to work. I'm working from check to check. It's like things never get better for me. I never experience a progression. So you never get to make that transition over into the real woman. And I think the real woman's life is a whole lot better than being this extra strong soldier woman. I want to be that real woman. I don't want to be a soldier all my life. Now, I want to bracket the potentially troubling heteronormative implications of the notion of the real woman that are going on here, right? Just bracket that for one second. And just hear the angst about what it means to always have to be the soldier. And the sense that it is not authentic. To use the word real is to suggest to us that we should be thinking about how this woman is imagining her authentic life experience versus these expectations of who she should be. So that's sort of what the book is up to. It is trying to make a claim that citizenship is not just about politics out there, but about politics in here. That like Du Bois who asks the question, how does it feel to be a problem? Not to have a problem, 21st century everybody has problems. But still, some bodies, right, are problems in and of themselves. And that Du Bois, for all of his brilliance, did not think enough about how a gendered body can be a different kind of problem. So I try to think through what it means to be doing citizenship work on the inside, what it means to be standing in a crooked room, what are the angles of that crooked room, how the very resistance strategy of the strong black woman can herself have a set of political and psychological implications that despite the fact that they are resistance to these negative historical images still leave us wanting for an authentic capacity to express self and importantly to express our rights as citizens. And then, because the book was written between the years of 2008 and 2020, it ends with a chapter on Obama. Because every book written between 08 and 2020 will end with, I mean, seriously, it doesn't really matter what the topic is. Electrical engineering in the age of Obama, everybody's last chapter. But, but in my context, it is not about President Barack Obama. It's actually about Michelle Obama because I'm just original like that. Um, and I, I asked the question, and, and, and I'll leave it here uh, as a question. I asked the question about what the benefits and the risks of fictive kinship with Michelle Obama are for black women in this moment. 
how thrilling and terrifying she is as a public figure, how much we enjoy watching her operate in the crooked room, how much we enjoy the moments when she seems to be able to find a straight up and down place, and how nervous we feel all the time that at any moment it could implode, that all of that history could show back up. And so there is this desire, this pleasure, of watching the performance of First Ladyhood in the body of Michelle Obama, but also a kind of terror in watching it because we know that the history is so ugly, is so painful, and there are moments, the Shirley Sherrard incident and others, where we're reminded that it's just on the surface and could come right back. And so our attachment to her is that pride that could also always at every moment turn into a stigmatizing shame that might seek to further separate us from the country that we do despite all of its flaws, love. Thank you. I tend to rant around the house and politics really gets under my skin. I love it, but like I've done some curse-laden rants about Obama and what he should be doing and how he's like whatever. And so then I was sitting there reading the article, love reading your articles, and I was just like, Ugh. Sure. Melissa Harris Perry thinks I'm a racist. Yeah. No, <laughs> I totally don't. Yeah. And then I read the follow-up and the follow-up and um and then and then somewhere in there I'm like, wait, but Maybe I'm not white. And then this does not... <laughs> no, it's all fine, me. yeah. <laughs> I'm good. Sorry. Like, I can say whatever about President Obama with impunity because I'm not actually white. Yes. Right, okay. That's, no, I, I, get, I, I feel your question, yes. So you kind of get what I'm saying mm-hmm. in there. And I know that you said, like, this is, you know, you want to open up a dialogue for, like, how people are feeling. And so I'm like, okay, okay. I can dialogue. Yeah. Like, we can talk about this. So that's why I felt like, sure. well, you know, you said your piece, but I'm up for the dialogue. Sure. And uh, if sure. you want to so, say... And, l- and, l- and let me explain it to you, because not, not everyone is following Twitter, although, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> at M. Harris Perry. So um, not everybody's following Twitter, and not everyone reads the nation. And again, what are you doing? Um, but, but, but the piece, um, you know, it's so... I never can predict the pieces that are going to produce this in people. And I, in a million years, I would not, I actually thought it was terribly boring when I wrote it. And I was so surprised by the reaction. So let me just quickly tell you what I think the piece says, and then I'll tell you what some other people seem to think the piece says. So um, I've been following President Obama's career um, politically for a long time because I lived in Chicago during the years that he was my state senator, then my US senator, and then presidential candidate. During his 2004 campaign for the U.S. Senate, he ran against Alan Keyes, who's also African-American. So the data nerd in me said, this is a great empirical test of what we would call naked racism, right? A naked racist, a total racist, would be unable to cast a vote in that election because both of them are black, right? This is just the, high, it's the null hypothesis, right? Is if I just cannot bring myself to vote for a black person at all, then I will show up in 2004, I'll vote for the presidential level, and then I will exit, I'll roll off, I will not cast a vote at the Senate level. And so we actually have a count of 
the trend of people doing that in previous elections, and then we saw what happened in 2004. And in 2004, there is no discernible naked racism in Illinois, none. Everybody's able to make a choice. They pick Alan Keyes or they pick Barack Obama, suggesting that white voters were totally able to choose and to bring themselves to pull the lever for one black candidate or another, right? Okay, so I said, well, that, that was interesting. Then in 2008, Barack Obama runs against Hillary Clinton in the primaries, and it goes on for so long that it becomes clear, again on pure empirics, that the only way that Senator Obama can lose to Senator McCain is if Democrats in key states choose not to vote for him. Right? This is a little bit harder to count as a naked racist vote, but I decided it was a reasonable hypothesis here, right? That post eight years of Bush, if after that long primary season, Democrats chose not to vote for the candidate of the Democratic Party, that would constitute racism. So not, not Republicans who voted for Republicans. That's their business, right? They, they're voting for their party. And not independents who, you know, are wishy-washy. But... <laughs> Right? I know they like to think of themselves as independent. Um, but, but Democrats, right? In this case, we could actually look at Democratic voters. And white Democratic voters absolutely kicked naked racisms, but they showed up not just in, in reasonable numbers, but he ended up with a higher percentage of the white vote than the white guys who had ran in the previous two elections. So I look at that and I'm like, you know, that is meaningful repudiation of the thing that we typically call racism. Right? We have such bad language for racism, so we seem to sort of maybe think and recognize that when somebody paints N-word on a rock that that would be racist, although apparently really just if you say that was insensitive, that's racist, but I, okay, I'm with you. So we sort of know that lynching and the KKK and that sort of thing is racist, and we, no one here is like angry at the idea that if you couldn't vote for any black candidate, that would constitute a kind of electoral racism, and or if you just can't vote for your party, right, when the black guy's running, that would constitute kind of not all purpose racism, but electoral racism. So then my question was, all right, so if that's repudiated, if I'm gonna make, I'm gonna go big on that data and say, all right, we're gonna call that kind of racism dead. Is there any electoral racism left? Interestingly enough, Barack Obama might provide another test. If this guy performed about the same as the last Democratic president, and, and I try to offer some evidence in the piece that Barack Obama is pretty much Bill Clinton. In fact, I probably go too far. I'd probably say he's way better than Bill Clinton, but, and maybe that's unfair, but there's a, there's a number of things that are highly Clinton-esque and then better. Like he cleans up, don't ask, don't tell. He doesn't defend DOMA. Clinton passed both of those. He does actually get a health care reform bill. Clinton did not. He does not increase incarceration. He actually signs fair sentencing. Bill Clinton increased incarceration in poor communities. He does not actually sign a welfare reform act that makes people poorer. In fact, he gives tax breaks to poor people. Like, so, so one could, at a meeting, you know, he has drone attacks. So did Bill Clinton. He fought wars that we were unhappy with. So did Bill Clinton. You know, he was irritatingly... Um, uh, uh, wanted to be liked by the Republicans. So did Bill Clinton. Like, there's just a, a number of things that are very Clinton-esque about him. So I said, and as a hypothesis, so if white people don't show up, white Democrats in particular, don't show up for him in 2012, there might be a new kind of racism. And it's not the, the thing that I've already said is dead. 
it is a kind of holding the black guy to a higher standard in this profound desire to have exactly the mammy figure that I've just talked about, right? I think the very fact that The Help is the best-selling book and, and top movie is in part about the grand desire for the mammy in this economic downturn. And so the fact that Barack Obama refuses to behave like Morgan Freeman or Will Smith and just <laughs> fix stuff with all his magical power. Now, I see how I didn't even say that in the Nation article. I restrained, I didn't even say that. I held all that back. <laughs> what I did not say is, if you criticize Barack Obama, you're racist. That is crazy. I'm very curious to see how you think shame, racial shame, can be the grounds for creating new relationships with other people as well as yourself. So if it's true that racial pride exposes the limits of how we can imagine you know, um, what's good or what's just, can racial shame, if we separate it from, you know, if we separate, if we use racial shame to think about you know, what is considered failure anyway? Yeah. And what, yeah. are the, yeah. what's, what are the limits of those criteria? And can we embrace shame to say that that is not me? You know, I'm, I'm very curious to see if your, your examples that you may have. Absolutely, yeah. sure. To my colleague's question, because it was somewhat similar. It's in fact shameful to talk about shame or even to admit that such a thing exists. Um, and one of the things that I'm very interested in is also the landscape of affective inequality. Mm -hmm. That the very character of shame in and of itself is a feature of the kind of injustice that exists on an emotional level in communities of color. And I was wondering if you might be able to comment on that. I love both of those questions. So the, for me, the grounding, smartest, most useful work on this is queer theory. Um, because queer theory, goes exactly there and says, hey, the work, the work of queer communities is the benefits, the political benefits of shamed identities, right? So if you think about what pride parades initially are, I mean, exactly what they are doing is displaying, opening up to public scrutiny a whole set of behaviors, practices, identities, and ways of being that are typically meant to be shameful, right? So the, 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 the political nature of shame is that it's a social emotion, right? You can feel guilt based solely on your own conscience, but shame requires that either someone is looking or you perceive the, the possibility of being seen. And so one of, the, one of the, the resistance activities of shame is to take a supposedly shamed characteristic identity behavior and make it public and make people have to engage with it, right? So October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? And like all the pilots are wearing pink and the NFL players are wearing pink and you can't really buy anything right now that's not pink. And, but that is, as a matter of political mobilization, I mean, that is the single most successful political social action to save people's lives by removing shame and stigma. You could not say breast in public. You could not talk about mastectomies. You certainly would not regularly tell women on a monthly basis to palpitate their own breasts and, and, and talk about it in a way that was just, oh, everybody is just on the breast cancer bandwagon. It's, it's not partisan. It's not ideological because 
breast cancer advocates actually pushed back against the idea that breasts were shameful. One of my favorite things to do is to take breast cancer walks. I do them um, every October because they do all these really funny booby jokes, right? Like everywhere you go, it's like save the tatas or save third base or, you know, like all of these, like, like breast stuff. Because part of it is as long as it's a, a dark secret, right? So that would be one policy example of it, of, of pushing back against it. And for me, queer theory is the emblematic example of how um, we say that the value of what, of what queer politics brings is a challenge to what is the normal. And it's, and it's of course, what that whole angst is about um, don't ask, don't tell, and marriage equality, is on the one hand, those are basic citizenship rights, right? You always know that there's some second-class citizenship going on, in military policy and marriage policy, right? If you're looking for second-class citizenship, look in those things and you will often find it. So it's a very reasonable set of political strategies. But the problem is it's also a very normative set of political strategies, right? It's not about we have a right to be queer and create different kinds of communities and different definitions of family. It's about look how look how much just like you we can be, look how respectable we can be. See, we can have our families look just like your families and we can serve in the military just like you. And, and so look how straight we can be rather than look how queer we can be and look at how valuable it is to take queerness and open up the very definition of what constitutes respectable and normal, right? To, to expand that normal curve. Okay, so so there's that possibility, but it hasn't shown up as well in that kind of identity-based politics, right? In other words, so much of what we think of as the LGBT agenda right now is a very normative one rather than a, uh, rather than a queer one. But I think that then really ties into this question about inequality in affect as well. Because part of it is, who even has a right to be sad? Who has a right to be angry? Why should we care how you feel? This, um, for me, has been fascinating in the context of Herman Cain saying that the N-word head um, ranch or whatever that, that Perry is on um, is um, insensitive. So the, the whole debate is fascinating for a number of reasons, right? Um, one, because I would think that the, the, the question of whether or not Rick Perry is uh, racist, right, should, should, should be a policy question. It should be a question about disparate impact. It should be a question about whether or not the policies that Rick Perry produces have a disparate impact on um, black and Latino communities where he governs. And if they do, then I don't really care what's in his heart. He might have all kinds of niceness in his heart. Really, who cares? Those policies have racially disparate impact. This is, you know, my husband, the lawyer, sues Barack Obama because HUD is racist. Not, I mean, I'm sure Sean Donovan likes black people. Really, who cares? That's not the point. Your policies on road home vis-a-vis -vis, um, black communities meant that black families in New Orleans got thousands of dollars less than white families. Fix that your policy is racist, right? So that's the only kind of racist conversation I want to have about a policymaker. But if we were going to have one about how someone might feel, niggerhead would be a good place to start. Like that one is, is pretty straightforward, you would think, except then it's not, right? And suddenly it turns out that the N-word actually means, you know, like coffee beans and happiness or something, right? Herman Cain is a man who lived during the era of Jim Crow. He was alive. He was a living human being in his black body during a time when we legislated shame 
for blackness. We legislated it, right? If you think about shame, shame has a physical posture. Head down, eyes averted, avoiding contact. When you feel shame, you don't want to go hang out with people. You, you draw back because you believe yourself to be malignant. That's literally what Jim Crow is. It says, we don't, you can't touch anything. You can't touch anything we're going to touch because your blackness might spread. And in fact, in public spaces, hang your head, avert your eyes, and lower your voice. Avoid public conduct. We legislate shame. And so he says, well, that sort of hurt my feelings. I mean, that's all he said. He was just like, well, that seems insensitive. And suddenly he is playing a race card because how he feels is completely irrelevant. Now, one might say that in the political realm, how anybody feels is irrelevant. You know, I'd be willing to hear that argument, that it's a rough and tumble place, bad things happen. But here's the deal, Thomas Jefferson. I know he meant to say property but he didn't, right? The fact is that the founding document, the social contract, that, that, that Jefferson could be a slaveholder who holds his own children in intergenerational chattel bondage, but did not write a slave document. Constitution, slave document, troubling. Constitution, problematic. Declaration of Independence, hot shit. Why? Because the language is so universal. He says that it is self-evident that all persons are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I get that he meant to say property, but he didn't. They made him take property out. They were like, well, that's a problem. So then he talked about fulfillment. He talked about part of the American project. I mean, there is nothing in 1776 less self-evident than the notion that all persons are created equal. I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to imagine what... <laughs> no. No. There's, I mean, there, you, can't, you can't pick one thing. And particularly, like, if you're on the mountain, if you're, if you're at Monticello, and you look around, that looks like self-evident human equality? Really? That's what that looks like to you? Okay, but he, so he didn't write, he writes this document so much bigger than himself, so much bigger than his time, and he suggests that part of the American contract is not just going to be about taxation, it's not just going to be about citizenship rights, it is literally going to be about our ability to pursue human fulfillment. The part of what will make America different will be that in our self-evident human equality, we will have equal capacity to find human fulfillment. And that is a big deal, right? So, so for me, the notion that some anger is more righteous than other, that some pain is more relevant than others, that some bodies matter more just because that body that was kidnapped was a, was a blonde, blue-eyed body, and this body that was kidnapped was a, was a black and nappy-headed body, and so we're not even going to talk about that body, right? The, the queering of the space, right, the whole project of queering is to bring everybody into the pursuit of happiness. Now, this does not mean that resource distribution is unimportant, right? And this was probably the hardest choice I made in the book was I either had to write a book about recognition or a book about resource distribution. And I did not write the book about resource distribution. I did not write the book about the education that we don't have, the money we don't have, the wealth we don't have, the power we don't have. I just didn't. I wrote a book about how we feel. And that um, is weird as a political scientist in the sense that it's about, it is about pursuit of happiness and not about the other parts, which I think we, we tend to 
do our policy work there, but I just want to suggest that the policy work can be on that too. And, and I think this is part of the misunderstanding that was occurring around the Nation article. I need my white liberal um, allies and friends to understand that Barack Obama means something to us in a way, not that he's perfect, not that he's, but we, we, we way past, per, I mean, Martin Luther King, like we knew about that too. I mean, we're, you know, but it, when we see a black body embodying the American state, and particularly a black body that didn't have to be black, that could have chose some other kind of intersectional identity, and was like, nope, I'm black. And on his census form, it's like, black. And then married Michelle, who looked black from way over there, and got regular hair. And then had some little black baby girls and braided their hair up and then lived on the south side of Chicago and hung out with some black people. I was just black, 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 black. <laughs> over and over again. And so it means something to us. It, when, when they fist bump in North Carolina, we were like, oh! You know, it was, it was like for Texans, when, when the president walks around and has the cowboy boots and the hat, you're like, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's how we do. I just... It, it is not enough, it is not sufficient, it is not, we're not just behind him because he's black, but it actually means something. And, and, and it is okay for it to mean something. We do not have to prove that we didn't vote for him or that we voted for him for reasons other than his blackness. We already proved that. We didn't vote for Al Sharpton. We stopped with Jesse, like we voted for Jesse and then we stopped and showed up for Dukakis. We just came on out. We don't have to prove, we don't have to prove that. We vote for white people all the time. We are good, we vote for white people. All kinds of them. So we don't, we don't prove nothing. But it actually, like when we see him drag that left foot a little bit, it means, it actually literally means something to us. And you just, when you criticize him, right? So, and so you can criticize him, you can go in, in fact, we expect you to criticize him. It, it, it is, as, as George Bush would have said, the soft bigotry of low expectations. If you don't hold him to a standard of governing, of do, but we just want you to do so in a way that respects that he is our fictive brother. And when you say particular kinds of things about him, you generate a shaming for all of us. So go, go in, call him, do. But when you do certain kinds of things, when you perform race privilege, even in the context of liberal allyhood, you do so in a way that can split us off because it matters how we feel actually matters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.